Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? Or maybe you just lost it. Well, Stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this, tickets that not only look but feel like the real deal. Because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift, or send the coolest invites, head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. There is no shame in being a victim. In today's episode of the Bravery Academy, I'm joined by Mary Turner Thompson, a published author of The Bigamist and The Psychopath. In these books, she tells her story of being married to a serial con man, Will Jordan. And really what she shares is how you can recover, how you can thrive and build resilience after going through trauma. We will be covering some sensitive topics today, particularly around psychopaths. So if this is not an episode that you're wanting to be listening to, feel free to move on. so much to talk about we do we really do oh mary welcome welcome to the bravery academy i can already see that this is going to be a very fun and fantastic podcast episode which is kind of unusual when we're both talking about the maybe the men that we've dated or in your case married who absolutely conned us so before we start can you tell me a bit about where you live and where you're from sure i am from and i live in edinburgh in scotland so Born and bred and grew up here and just love Edinburgh so much. I have no desire to go anywhere else, if that makes any sense. It's a happy place. Yes. Happy place. So, the reason why you're here today is around this amazing story that you've been sharing for several years now. Can you tell me about Will Jordan? Yeah. Uh, Where do do we start? start? (laughs) How old were you when you met him? Oh, Gosh, how old was I when I met him? I was 34. Yes, 34. And I just had my first child by a relationship that had quite spectacularly failed. The classic reason why, why you should never get involved with a musician. Mm. <laughs> it's like he, he, would, he desperately wanted to have a child, but actually didn't have any clue about what that involved or any kind of realistic idea of what parenting meant. So I was left on my own with a nine-month-old child, and after about you know two or three months or whatever, my 
my friends and family were saying, well, you know, there's this new thing called internet dating. Why don't you try it? What could possibly go wrong? Yeah. And that was the year 2000. So 23 years ago, gosh. And uh, yeah, just I thought, I'll try it. I'll just just dip a toe in and see what's out there. I very much <laughs> had the same experience, you know, post-divorce. <laughs> someone and saying, come on, give it a go. Get out there. You'd be great on that. It's a bit different. Yeah. We were swiping probably by that stage because it was only about <laughs> Seven years ago, I think, since it was a swipe oh gosh, status. Yeah. So it's a bit different, but they're not different, right? Because it's still yeah. the the nervousness of going out there and dating. Yeah. yeah. And so you're putting out your profile and saying, hey, I'm available. I mean, from my generation, because I'm 58 now. And in my generation, it was very brash to yeah. say, you know, it's like putting yourself on a shop shelf, you know, going yeah. here, come by me. Yeah. And it just, it felt very, very strange. But I mean, it makes a lot of sense as well. I mean, I do think it's funny when you have the people going into parties and stuff like that when I was young, and you were just you, you were guessing whether people were married or not. You're flirting. You find somebody you want to flirt with, and then you find out, oh no, they've been happily married for ten years. It's like, oh, all that work, all that effort <laughs> put in, it was a complete waste of time. So I kind of like the idea of the Tinder type. Did you meet some other people before you met Will Jordan? Yeah, I actually met three people beforehand. One, one I got on with so well, he was like a brother. And, uh, you know, we, we were friends for a long time. Actually, I lost touch now. One who I met, I went on a date with, and he started complaining about, I asked him if he was married, you know, if he you know, had a relationship. And yeah, yeah, he hated his ex-wife. And then I said, do you have any children? He said, yeah, I've got one daughter, but she looks like her mother, unfortunately. Oh, And I just kind of went, oh, oh, oh that's, a, that's a bit of a red flag. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> so I just went, no, thank you very much. So I kind of went running away from that date like it was a mad axe murderer. And I did date one other guy. And then I found out he was seeing my friends behind my back, not as girlfriends or anything, but, you know, people would see him and say, oh, you're Mary, come to a party. And then he wouldn't tell me about it. He would just go to the party on his own. And I just thought, that's just not right. Amber flag, <laughs> amber flag, that one. So I gave up on the whole idea of internet dating. I didn't know that when you cancelled your account in those days, they just kept you up because they wanted the numbers. So I didn't even know that I was still on this dating site. And I got this uh, message from this guy who just seemed so natural and so charismatic and just came across as the most genuine person on the planet. You know, very chatty, very breezy, very open because, you know, he even said he couldn't have kids because he was had a bad bite of mumps as a child. He actually sent that to me in the very first email. That was the first setup right there. Yes. Yeah. Right. Before there. I even before I even had replied to him. So he'd said he was American. He'd been chasing his career around the globe because he couldn't have kids. He'd never really settled down and have a family. But now his, you know, his biological clock was ticking and even though he couldn't have kids of his own, he was really interested in now settling down. I had a similar story. <laughs> I had a very similar story um, with, you know, yeah, I've been so busy with my businesses. And later on, it was because I was also in the Australian Special Forces as well. So, you know, all oh, these yes. reasons. Oh, so for, similar. Yeah. So similar with the layers of it. And, you know, I was just, I'm a unicorn because I haven't been married and I haven't had kids. Actually, yeah. that's a red flag, you'll find. <laughs> it's actually <pretty laughs> cool. a red that flag. That is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, gosh, yeah. So many similarities, isn't there, between us? It's quite interesting. How did he kind of start to wingle his way into your life at that point then? I mean, it was like, just 
uh, daily conversations. I mean, about 30 messages back and forth every day. And then we agreed to meet after, I think it was about two weeks of just chatting online and everything I'd read, he'd read. You know, we'd talk about books and, and concepts and philosophy and films we'd watched. And, you know, sort of like we had so much in common. <laughs> and then when we met, just, oh, I mean, the first, the first thing that happened actually was he said, I'd really like to talk to you in person. You know, I'd like to come have a telephone call. Uh, and I was like, oh, okay, you know, so like, so this is getting real now. Sent him my phone number and he said, I'll, I'll call you in half an hour. And nothing happened. Yeah. And, you know, the evening went by and nothing happened. And I thought, okay, right, well, what is this? Is it just gathering phone numbers or something? But he seemed so genuine and so wanted to talk to me. He'd asked me for it. And so it just didn't make any logical sense to me. Why would he ask my phone number and then not call? And, you know, sort of like went to bed, got up the next day, still nothing from him. And I always got good morning from him and everything else. I thought he'd fallen down the stairs and broken his neck or something. You know, I thought something had happened to him because it didn't make any logical sense as to why anyone would behave like this. And this went on for like three days. And I just thought, okay, right, the guy's a player. He's just been messing me around. And then after three days, I just got this message going, oh, I'm really sorry. I didn't get in touch. I was called away to work. And I was just like, good enough. At all, good enough, you know, get lost. Thank you. That's not at all. That's not nearly a good enough reason, you know, you got cold away to work. And he just, he was like, you know, begging and saying, Oh, I'm so sorry. I've been getting on so well. And I really do want to talk to you and explain, you know, please, it's okay for me to call. And I didn't have to give him, I mean, I've already given him my number. He could have just phoned, yeah. but you know, he wanted me to be prepared for his call. Yeah. I mean, looking back now, I know exactly what was going on. But at the time, it was just like, this guy clearly isn't interested. So why is he now saying all these things? And it, would just, it kept me so off balance. It kept me so confused. And then when he did call, it was just like, oh, the conversation just flowed so naturally. And I was just taking a mickey because I was like, you know, this is clearly going nowhere. <laughs> and I don't know if you know that expression. Can take the we mickey do have that. Yeah, yes, okay. yeah, you do that. New Zealand has that one. Take the mickey. <laughs> I do say something sometimes with all around the world. I say things and I, I realize it's a Scottish expression that I didn't realize before. Yes. Uh, but yeah, I just was taking the mickey basically and just being funny. And it just, but as, as a result, I wasn't nervous anymore. And it just really kind of clicked and hit it off. We were talking every day. And then after, as I say, about sort of two and a half weeks after we first started talking online, we met in person. And it just kind of, yeah, just went from one one step to another very very quickly and two and a half weeks after we met he proposed yeah how um, soon it was oh yes i mean it was crazy and and i just i literally said no yeah. <laughs> I just said, absolutely not i mean even the proposal was weird how did he propose oh again it's another one where he was supposed to be taking me to london to go to a party with all his work colleagues Mm -hmm. And so I was all packed and I had my daughter, my mom was looking after my daughter and I hadn't introduced them yet. And I think it was sort of two days before Christmas or something like that. And he didn't turn up and he's constantly saying, I'm on my way, I'm on my way. I've been delayed and, and don't worry, we'll get the next flight and all the rest of it. I sat there, eventually I just opened a bottle of wine and drank the entire thing and went to bed. And I was like, I'm, I'm not putting up with that behavior, you know. Mm. And then at seven o'clock in the morning, he turned up on my doorstep with a teddy bear with a diamond ring around its neck. And asked me to marry him when I was in the midst of dumping him. I mean, I was in the midst of saying, no, I'm not having this. Thank you very much. You can get lost. You know, and he said, well, it's, I'm really upset as well because I was going to do this and handed me the teddy bear. And so things he said and did, and then the things he said and did in person just totally didn't fit. And it, there's a kind of cognitive 
dissonance, isn't yes. it? When you have someone like that, that you kind of, your logical brain is going, nah, that's utter nonsense. But then there's something they do and suddenly you go, oh, okay. So they are interested. It really messes with your brain chemistry and you end up so off balance. I think I've used a lovely line in, in the book, The Psychopath. You start to feel that you're on this pedestal yeah. and you don't realize at the time they're actually gluing you to it. <laughs> like, so as a result, you know, after when they start knocking the pedestal out from under you, you can't move. You don't know where you're going or what direction to turn to. It is a systematic and deliberate process to, to manipulate people. And it's like, it doesn't matter how smart you are and everything else. The only way it doesn't work is if you don't have any empathy. Exactly. So how did that relationship unfold? How did you go from then having that ring put in front of you to then eventually marrying him and then having kids? <laughs> well, shorten the story because this could go on forever. Yeah, basically after about, about three or four months into the relationship, two things happened. One was he finally told me what he really did for a living, which was that he worked for the official department of central intelligence of the USA, more commonly known as the CIA. And he'd been recruited directly out of university. He was not a spy. He was one of the IT guys. He was a guy, you know, if you ever watch a spy movie, there's usually the guy in the van doing the IT stuff. Who is the guy in the van? <laughs> so it wasn't, hey, baby, I'm a spy. It's, hey, baby, yeah, I do have a, a weird job and I am an IT person, but I just happen to work for a rather strange organization. So it wasn't, it was <laughs> And it, Sorry, there's so many similarities again. It was the, <laughs> hey, baby, I'm a spy, but actually I am a spy. Was I like, <laughs> it's, what's so bizarre is the truth is actually more weird than the story he told. <laughs> it's, it's more dramatic. The other thing that happened is I rather miraculously found out I was pregnant, considering that he was, you know, completely convinced he was infertile. Yeah, it turned out, you know, his parents rang me to say how pleased they were to have their first grandchild, et cetera, et cetera. And we got married a few months after our first daughter was born. And so life got a bit better after he told me what he did for a living, because then suddenly other people would be able to contact me and say, you know, he's been called away and rather than being left waiting. There were times actually like there's times I was in a, a theater and he was supposed to join me in the theater. He was supposed to join me going to the theater, didn't turn up. And then once he was, well, he was said he was on his way and to leave the ticket on the door. And I left the ticket on the door. Suddenly somebody came up to me when I was sitting in the seat and just said, I've got a message for you. You know, he can't come just so you know. And I was just like, oh, okay. You know, sort of fine. Did he pay you know, people? people? Ring. <laughs> it's, it's so much simpler than that. It's oh. so much simpler. It's like, this is, this is the way our minds work. All right. Because he set the scenario as if I can't come, there'll be people that contact you. You know, sort of like they won't be able to tell you who they are, but there'll be people that contact you, you know, et cetera. So people would phone me and say, he can't come because he's been called away or anything else, right? This particular person that came to in the theater, for instance, and said, just let you know that he can't come, right? It was probably one of the reception staff or the manager. He probably just phoned up and said, there's my wife. Could you just tell her I'm unable to come? <laughs> it's <Sorry>. really simple. <laughs> well, but to me, because he prepped me with this story of somebody will, you know, and there's somebody will be connected. Different people would phone me and say, he's just been called away. You know, I get lots of messages and various things, other things as well. But they could have been random people on the street that he just said, listen, I want to go and buy my wife a, a birthday present or something. And I'm going to be late. She doesn't like it when I'm late. Would you possibly just give her a call on this number and just say, your husband's been called away? Yeah. It, it's actually so much simpler. It's just because the psychology has been put in place with the victim 
that this is then evidence of what yes. they're saying is true. So it's like that there are all sorts of things. He had a he had this watch, which uh, again in two thousand and one was quite spectacular technology. But this watch was just pure black, you know, sort of with the hands and stuff like that. But he would get up out of bed because this thing had kind of given him a like almost like an electric shock. And I would go, "What's going on?" He's they're calling me away. And I would go, "Oh, all right." And then he he would be so sleepy, he would fall back asleep in bed. All right, and then it would do it again. And I would, you know, sort of like go, how did they not know you're moving? And he said, oh, it's, you know, because it's got GPS in it, et cetera. It was just an alarm. <laughs> it didn't cross my mind at the time because at the time I was so sucked into the story. Yeah. Again, it just, it was that cognitive dissonance. It just didn't fit with this guy who, you know, came across as the loveliest, most loving and so annoyed when he was called away and, and yeah. so irritated by it. You know, it wasn't like he was itching to leave or anything. <laughs> it's just like. So yeah, it was just bizarre. But all these sort of little things, they reframe what they mean. He used to carry a gun, which in, in Scotland is just, no, that doesn't, you know, especially in Dunblane, we don't do that. And the, and the Americans always have that thing about, what do you mean he's not allowed to carry a gun? But no, absolutely not in Scotland. And I never saw the gun. I felt it through his jacket. So he had a holster. I saw the holster. Oh. And he... <laughs> So it could have been a water pistol for all I know, but he, he used to lock this thing up in a cupboard when he came home. I mean, it's like, I very possibly, you know, I asked to see it. I mean, I didn't like the idea of him having a gun around my daughter, yes. but you know, he was very, very adamant. You know, he gets it locked up when he comes home. So at least there was that. But yeah, I mean, just this, it's this odd, strange life I was living. And then he had a very, very bad, told me he had a very bad experience when he was in a kind of war torn area. I'll not go into that because it's all political yeah. at the moment. But he went into this war torn area and he couldn't get out. And basically three months he disappeared for. And he was talking to me on a satellite phone, telling me about the dead kids in the street and all that kind of stuff. And so I was sitting at home kind of going, I'm being selfish if I saying, you know, not here to help with, with our daughter. But when he came back, his feet were all mangled. And sort of just a really horrendous state because he said he hadn't been able to take his socks and shoes off for three months because he'd been in this war town running from one place to another. Just all this kind of stuff happening. So he wanted to get out of the CIA and he did. And he became an IT programmer for a couple of rather large, rather famous organizations. And then people had found out his true name and true address at this thing. These same sort of people that would fly planes into the Twin Towers. And they were then blackmailing us, saying that because he now knew where he lived and where his children were, by this time he'd had a son as well, so he had two children with him. They said, basically, if we didn't come up with money, they were going to kidnap the kids and rip bits of them and send them through the post. And this was four years into the relationship. And I was utterly brainwashed by this time. And I just sold everything I could get my hands on, including my flat, my life insurance, my piano, my car, anything I'd get my hands on just to raise money to keep my kids safe. And it was like a shark's feeding frenzy. And I came up with about £198,000. And wow. I was left with nothing, absolutely nothing. You know, even the money I was earning myself, I was putting towards helping him go from one place to another, trying to sort it out. The only person I thought I could trust at the time was him. And I was literally every night getting up and pacing the house with a taser in my hand that he'd given me. And expecting to see shadowy figures around the corner, sort of like, and have to try and defend my kids against, you know, always I thought it was always going to be three guys. I don't know why. I mean, I was expecting to see them. 
not just worried about it, but actually, I never slept. I didn't, you know. You must have been so exhausted. Oh, I was a mess. I was a mess. And then fast forward to 5th of April 2006, and I got a phone call from my husband's other wife. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. 5th of April 2006, got a phone call from my husband's other wife. Turns out none of it was true. When he was said he was in the war-torn area, he was with her, spent two weeks wearing boots two sizes too small for him, so he'd mangle his feet. That she had five children to him, her nanny had two children to him. The parents, who had rang me to say they were so pleased about having their first grandchild, had actually spent Christmas with the wife and the five children, the nanny and her two children, the Christmas before. Oh, stop for a second on that one. <laughs> I love that. He's like, that's the reaction I get every time. Yeah. So I yes, have his the... parents were complicit. Right. Because this is what I can't understand with my common element of it, who's his mother stayed with me as well, with him, hmm. and knew his background, knew his past, been in jail in New Zealand and everything. Never mentioned anything. Yep. Why were they complicit? What's your take on Will Jordan's well, it... parents? Yeah, for for Will Jordan's parents, I'd say, I think probably his father was a psychopath and his mother was an apath. So what often happens with the parents or the family of a psychopath is that they have had it their entire lives. The parents, you know, have been manipulated and uh, abused by their child. So actually, when the psychopathic child gets a partner, it's actually a relief for the parents because they're no longer targeted themselves. So it's like, maybe this one can sort him out. Maybe this one will actually be good for him. But I mean, deep down, what it really is, is he's distracted for a while, so he's not doing it to me. And that's, the, the, yeah, the apaths are basically people who do have conscience and remorse, who are not sociopathic or psychopathic or narcissistic, but they will dull their own empathy for the psychopath's other victims, because then it means that it's not them. So you find a lot of the henchmen around psychopaths are apaths. Because as long as they're doing what the narcissist or psychopath is saying, then they won't be a target. I suspect with, well, Jordan's parents, I think they probably were benefiting somewhat financially from the things he was doing. So he was probably helping support them with the money that he was taking from the women. So many elements to your story, you have gone through it and captured it, both in both books, The Bigamist and The Psychopath. There's so many tales that then when you look at it from a helicopter view, you go, this just isn't normal. But when you're in it and all you see is one lens of it and one version, yeah, it's so hard to understand the why. 
Yeah. How did you, after that day, then move forward? Well, I, one of the things that I think surprises most people is that when I got the phone call from the other wife, it, by that stage, it, the whole story, I mean, we haven't, we haven't you know yourself because you've read the I books. I know, but yeah. You need to read the book. Anybody listening, <laughs> read the books and watch the, <laughs> the documentary. <laughs> But we're not even one not even touching on some of the really dark parts of what he did. But you know, sort of got glossing over the headlines here. But basically finding out it was just him was a massive relief. It was actually like getting a get out of jail free card. Yes, I had lost everything. I'd lost all my money. I wasn't rich. You know, hundred and eighty eight thousand pounds is a lot of money, but that was my property, that was my car, that was <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yes, most people, I, they sell everything they own. <laughs> yeah, you do know. I do know. Yeah, but most people, they sell everything they own. Actually, you know, it, 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 it creates quite a lot of money. He'd also left me, by the way, £56,000 in debt because he took out credit cards in my name. Being my husband, he was allowed to do that. And then he had spouse cards, which he could then use with his name. And I knew nothing about these. But when the dust all settled, I started getting phone calls from the debt collectors saying, you owe us all this money. And I'm like, what for? So that was fun. But yeah, it, it's it, it finding out that there was no shadowy people. Suddenly, I didn't have to worry about people kidnapping my kids and hurting them. Massive, massive relief. You found out who the threat was, which was him, right? So that was yeah. the danger. Yeah, it was very like. I mean, it was like coming out of the Matrix. It was like a total reality shift. Another way of describing it is like people could say, "Why didn't you get a private detective woman or something?" And it's like. To do that, you had to say, okay, well, I don't trust him. And I kept saying, well, if I don't trust him, then what's the point in the relationship anyway? So it, it's like trying to take the Grand Canyon in two jumps. It is the either or. It's not halfway. You can't dabble in this. It was one or the other. And it took that phone call from the other wife. It took something really quite dramatic to really snap me out of it and, and make me go, right, okay. So I did have suspicions, but every time I had a suspicion, I would just bury it. The red flags that were coming up, could you research them or do anything like that or you just weren't able to because it wasn't the information there? No, I mean, the things like when he was in the war-torn place, he was actually sending me photographs. I was watching it all going on in the news as well. So the stuff that he was telling me, I would then find out hours, days later on the news. I still don't know how he did that. There was one time Yasser Arafat was reported as dead for instance, and he was sitting beside me in the office and it came up on the BBC. I used to have the headlines come up on my computer when breaking news happened. Uh, I'm a bit of a news junkie. And it came up saying, yes, Arafat was dead. And it was huge news at the time. And I just said, oh my gosh, you know, yes, Arafat is dead. And he didn't look up from his computer. He just said, no, he's not. It's not dead. And I said, no, no, no. They just come up on BBC. have just announced it. No, not dead. And I was just like, all right. Okay. And I thought it's sort of like, I'll leave him alone. I'll talk to him later. And it's uh, about two or three hours later, the BBC then said, no, actually, he's not dead. He's been taken to hospital by ambulance. It was misreported. And he died about a week later. But I mean, genuinely that happened. And I don't, I don't know how he would know these things. And there was times when during conflicts and people were being kidnapped and executed on video, he was actually assessing those videos to see whether they were true before they were on the news. And I saw them before they were on the news. So it was all these kind of things that kind of proved that he was who said him he was doing the job he said he was. Because I was seeing some of this stuff. And I genuinely don't know how he got hold of this stuff. I have no idea. 
how he had access to the stuff before it was actually available on the news. Don't know. There were things about escapes. There were people that escaped and then then being caught and taken back and all sorts of things. I mean, just really, really odd things that just kind of went, oh my gosh, yes, the only reason you could possibly know that is because you do do the job you see. But as a lot of people have said, so how did he do that? And it's the only way I can say it's like, you don't have to know how a magic trick is done to know it's not real magic. <laughs> you know, you just have to kind of go, nah. <laughs> yeah. So there was so, so much stuff. I mean, daily, so much stuff that kind of verified who he said he was. But yeah, it was all just mind games and, and tricks and stuff like that. How did you feel at the time? At the time when I found out, relief that, okay, I'd lost everything, but at least right. now I was free to start again. This is a little bit of a tangent here, and I'm perfectly okay talking about it. I can even crack jokes about it if you like. But I was I was molested as a child, sexual molestation as a child. From the age of six to the age of 26, I tortured myself because the abuse stopped when I was six years old. It was a family friend, and when my family found out, they, it was all stopped. And at 26, I kind of went, hang on a minute. <laughs> and I kind of like, I did a lot of work to get there. But at 26, I just kind of went, I have tortured myself for 20 years. Because I couldn't accept that as a child, I didn't understand what was wrong. So I participated in the game. You know, I was groomed and then I joined in. And because I joined in, I must be as bad as him. And so when this happened and when I found out about World Jordan, I had already promised myself that I would never, ever, ever do that to myself again. That nobody should ever be ashamed or embarrassed of having been a victim of a crime, whether you're a child or an adult. There's a lovely campaign going on, It's Not My Shame, where people are wearing it on the t-shirts. And I just, I thoroughly agree with that. So when this all happened, it was almost immediate. I have been a victim again, but I am not going to remain a victim. And I'm not going to be shy or embarrassed about what's happened. You know, I've had people sort of say, oh, you you must be really stupid to have believed him. I know I'm not stupid. I've had the same thing. I know I'm an intelligent woman. I'm not particularly gullible. I am a little, I was naive about what psychopaths were, but I can forgive myself for that. You know, I, I have nothing to, be shy or embarrassed about, right? And I, I do find it extraordinary. When I first wrote the book, somebody said to me, ooh, are you going to write it under your own name? And I was just like, yeah. It's like, why wouldn't I? But I think it's one of the things that's been the best thing about this whole experience is that over the last, oh my gosh, what is it now? So it was 2007 when the book first came out. That's 15 years? 16 yeah. years? Yep. 16 years, yeah. God, I can't count. You can tell, can you? <laughs> But the most powerful message that comes back to me all the time is is that, is that the people are still embarrassed and ashamed and yes. a partner or a, has an affair, let alone all the rest of it. But somebody has an affair and they then actually feel so humiliated by it. And then they read my books and then they come back going, I realize I don't have anything to be embarrassed about. <laughs> Thank you. And I think it takes women like us standing up and saying, this is my story and this is what happened to me. And I don't have anything to be ashamed about. I don't have anything to be crushed or humiliated about because I did nothing wrong. All I did was love with an open heart and not realize and understand how psychopaths work. I thought there was more chance of winning the lottery than there was of meeting a psychopath. And genuinely, I thought they, I knew they existed. I just didn't know that they were one in one percent of society. One in a hundred people. I don't think I knew they existed as much as like that number. That number gets me. Tell me about psychopaths. That's a whole other book. <laughs> it's another great book. <laughs> so, well, okay. So 1% of society are psychopaths, 4% of CEOs, uh, 25% of the prison population, because not all psychopaths are good at what they do. They say that one in four psychopaths are female. 
that's demonstrated in the UK by the fact that we have four criminal psychiatric facilities that that house people who are criminally diagnosed as psychopaths. Only one of those is female. So you have three male and one female. The truth is, I reckon there are just as many female psychopaths as male, but women are much better at passing it off as either hormones or Mm. stress or all sorts of other things. Because women are actually taught how to demonstrate empathy far more than men are. So as a result, you know, I think women are far better at hiding psychopathy. To the point that I think quite a few psychopathic females don't even know they are. Not that they would care, but you know. So about ten percent of the finance industry is are psychopaths. So that's a bit of improvement in the last few years. <laughs> there's uh but <laughs> there's there's two points in your brain that are sort of towards the back and above your ears that if I took my finger and I snapped it in half and just went crack right in front of you, you, your eyes would wince. I can see you doing it on the air. You know, you kind of go, ooh, you know, you, you wince and you feel because it feels like two hot needles going into your skull. And that is a chemical empathic response, right? So psychopaths, sociopaths, and some narcissists do not have that response. So what happens is they can watch somebody get hurt and feel nothing. And it's a very popular game called Sims um, that people play. Do you know that? Okay, yeah. so it's, it's, a, it's a game where you have characters on your screen and you can make them get pregnant and have relationships and you can move these people around and you can make them do things and you can make them say things to each other. And it's, it's like being God. You can puppet master everybody. And to a psychopath, that's what the world is like. You know, We're just electronic characters to be moved around. They don't feel any more empathy towards us than an ant farm. We are just players in their game to be moved around and see how long we can make them wait, see how much money we can get out of them or what we can get them to do sexually. You know, And the money, sex and power that guides psychopaths, it's only money, sex and power because those are the three measurements of control. They don't really care about the money or the sex or the power. It's just a measurement. It's so out with any empathic person's remit and so alien to us. Because, you know, we see a child fall over and scrape all the skin off their knees. And we're like, oh, gosh, you know, I want to help that kid. That's so sad. They see that happen. They go, oh, they're making a mess. You know, <laughs> so it's just an, it's completely alien to anyone with empathy that someone can actually live their entire life without. Why are we the targets they choose? Yeah, so there, there is a scale of, of psychopathy. So 1% of society are full-blown out-and-out psychopaths. So that's a 100%, 40 out of 40, actually, because that's on the PCLR, which is the Psychopath Checklist Revised done by Dr. Robert Hare, who's the leading expert on psychopaths in the world. And that's the sort of benchmark that we use to assess whether somebody's a psychopath. So my ex would score 40 out of 40. Those types of people are 1% of society. However, up to 15% of society are on that spectrum. But you think about that, you know, that's, 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 that's less than a one lot in of 10, my you know? family. <laughs> that big family. So those are people that, that range from just being selfish to being serial killers, you know. And then you've got up to 15% of society are actually on the opposite end of the spectrum, which is high empathy. And this is something that's sort of quite new to me, but I did a test on empathy and came out extremely high. I mean, to the point that I can't watch those videos that my children watch where somebody's skateboarding down and, and lands awkwardly. I honestly, I feel physical pain when I see these things. And that's because I have such high empathy. 
And the more I looked into this, the more I realized that actually the more empathic you are, the more likely you are to be a target of a psychopath. And it's very simple. They will test the waters and they will test the waters by saying, my mother's ill or something like that. And when they say my mother's ill, the person who turns around and goes, oh my gosh, that's awful. What can I do to help? That's somebody with high empathy. Somebody who's in that middle range would actually turn around and go, well, what do you expect me to do about it? All right. They don't have the empathy. They're not controlled by empathy. So they just kind of go, I don't understand what you're telling me. So those people don't become a target because they're not so easy to manipulate. Whereas we high empaths are really easy to manipulate because people just give us some sob story and we go, oh no, I want to help. How can I mother you? (laughs) How can I I be of assistance? Because we want to help people because that's what matters to us is those connections with other people. But actually what our release and our cure for this is, is awareness and understanding. Because now anyone hearing this, when some new boyfriend or whatever says, oh, my mother's ill, they'll stop and think, hang on a minute (laughs) and go, okay, so what is it you're asking me for? Instead of what can I do to help? So we don't volunteer it. It doesn't mean you don't help at all, but just hold back and be aware of those boundaries because that's what makes us target. So when he first said he was going to phone me, waiting that three days, and I was worried about his health, basically, that was a test to see whether or not I would and how I'd respond to it. And also whether he could suck me in again afterwards. Uh, He did that with every single person, arranged to talk to them and then not. So it is actually a pattern of behavior. Can you tell me about how many that you know of wives he's had and children? Wives, he was married in the USA at least once, and then he was married in the UK, and then he married me whilst he was still married in the UK. So I know of three wives, two of which overlapped. But in 2006, when I found out about the other wife, I also found out about five fiancés. So I know that he had two wives and five fiancés all at the same time. I suspect that I would have just been another fiancé, except for the fact that my mother was ill. And I think he was keen on the inheritance. I think that's why he took the risk of marrying me at the same time as being married to someone else. But yeah, I have I've no idea why he actually went through with the marriage. I found out actually that I thought when you got married that you had checks done to see that the person wasn't married to someone else. Turns out that in Scotland, they'll check in Scotland. In England, they'll check in England. In Wales, they'll check in Wales you know, et cetera, et cetera. So he could be married once in every single country and nobody would know. So, you know, he could have had otherwise. I know of 21 victims who have come forward since I went public with the book. Nobody went public before me, mm. but I've had people who were before me come forward since. So I know of 21 women. I know of 14 children that he's had by eight different women. And that 21 victims is just the women, the love forward relationships he's had. I also know of five or six landlords who have been in touch with me who were ripped off hundreds of thousands of pounds. I know of businesses who were ripped off hundreds of thousands of pounds. I know of charities that he set up websites for to do fundraising, who when they went to collect the funds, the funds weren't there. I know he's posed as a pediatric doctor. He's posed as running a medical records company. He's posed as CIA, MOD, a foreign office abroad, you know, helicopter pilot he's posed as. Just such an array of things. (laughs) Like We set up a Facebook group. And uh, I thoroughly recommend this, actually. It's like so many people have said, can we join? It's like, sorry, it's a bit of an exclusive club. It's only victims of the same man, you know? 
but it's been brilliant because we have actually been able to sort of share stories and really, as we've moved away from him, particularly actually support each other in new relationships and understand how the women are feeling when they start dating someone new, for instance. So, I mean, that's been really, really positive and powerful as well. That's a big (laughs) thing. So how do you feel about that? How do you feel about dating and trust now? I'm, I'm not closed off to it, but I am of an age now where I really, really rather enjoy having the whole bed to myself. <laughs> I have a dog that I have to kind of wrap myself around. I have, have loving children and great relationships and wonderful friends. I don't miss being in a relationship. I don't feel like I need to be in a relationship. If somebody wonderful kind of turned up and we clicked and we got on, I'd probably put a private detective on him. Um, but <laughs> Same. So I'm not ruling it out, but I'm certainly not looking. I've dated a couple of times and actually uh, it's funny stories, as they say, but there was one time uh, I went on a first date with this guy and I was in this very beautiful hotel. There was a kind of roaring fire going and there was only one other couple in the room and we were sitting there and I'm getting on really well. And I was really concerned because I was kind of going, what do I say? I mean, it's a heck of a lot to dump on somebody, you know, on a first date. But at the same time, if you don't tell somebody, you know, are you kind of lying to them? So I thought, I'll just leave it until the next date or something. And I'll just, you know, just see, get to know each other and that's fine. And so we're sitting there chatting away and we've been chatting for about two hours. And <laughs> the other couple got up from across the room. And as they were leaving, because we were up, we were right beside the door, the woman came up to me and she tapped me on the side. I just wanted to say, I've read your book and I think it's so marvelous. You're absolutely wonderful. And they walked out the door and he was looking at me going, what? <laughs> so I'm, Okay, well, it's just, and it was utterly hysterical. But I always think if you do tell somebody straight up, they're either going to think that I'm really damaged goods and, and yeah. you know, complete liability and I can't touch this woman. She's obviously disturbed. Or they're going to think if I mess up, she's going to write a book about me. It's <laughs> 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 so, a lose lose kind of situation, really, isn't it? So I'm just going through life being me and I am very happy and very single and quite happy that way. One of the elements that you talk about in your book that again resonated with me was this feeling of wanting to learn to fight after what you went through. (laughs) And I had a similar element and it was, I just needed to figure out how to defend myself, even though that threat had moved back to Australia. So he couldn't get me. But it was still yeah. this feeling of like, I don't like this vulnerability we have sometimes as women. And I yeah. need to know how to defend myself. And so I did something. To, I didn't do Taekwondo that you did. I did jiu-jitsu. And yeah. I had, didn't get to my black belt status that you did, which I think is so impressive. So impressive, especially when you hear your story of where you were at at that time. But yeah. it's something that I will always treasure is being involved in that community and honoring it. And I think it's something that, again, if we're looking at how do we help other women or men go through this, is saying that learning a martial art is one of the most powerful things that you can do for so many reasons, the physical, the mental, the emotional, the the community. Yeah, it helps massively with your physical self-confidence. And, you know, the fact that you can defend yourself. Because, I mean, when you do the black belt exam, uh, and I did Taekwondo, uh, and luckily I had a very, very good teacher because I was a single mom. I had a seven-year-old, a four-year-old, and a one-year-old. Yeah. And I went to this guy and I said, listen, I need to learn to fight. Can my children join in? So the children actually joined in the class, and the one-year-old sat in the corner on a blanket and 
as he got older and so like two and three, he used to hold onto my ankles whilst I was doing it. And I got my black belt within three years. I was pretty driven. I was pretty driven. But I mean, it gave me something really to focus on that was empowering me. And actually, one of the funniest stories I've got is actually to do with that. It was just before I did my black belt. When you're training for your black belt, I think it's easier nowadays, actually, because my kids did it and they didn't have to do this. But you had to defend yourself in the exam one-on-one with another black belt. And you're not both being examined. It's just one is being examined and the other one has to attack. Then you sort of have a rest and then you become the person that's attacking, etc. And then you have to defend yourself against two black belts. And then you have to defend yourself against three. And then you have to defend yourself against four black belts. And if you can't defend yourself against four other black belts, you don't pass your exam. So it's pretty tough. You have to be able to defend yourself against basically four guys because it was always guys. There's very few women doing black belt. And so I'm training for this. And so walking through the park with my, at the time, which was 10-year-old daughter and seven-year-old daughter. My son was at nursery. And there were these teenage boys, group of them, about six or seven of them. And they'd started a fire against this wall of this primary school. So I'd sort of said, is that your fire? And they said, no, 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 nothing to do with us. And it's highly illegal. And so I said, oh, fine. And I went and I stamped the fire out. One of the boys was very annoyed with me for doing that and started going towards the fire, striking a match, you know, and I sort of like, oh, so it is your fire. And uh, and I took out my phone, which at the time was one of those really basic ones. Um, (laughs) It didn't have photograph capacity. It was just a phone. And they said, oh, it's going to call the police. And I actually kind of had a better thought. I just turned around and I literally said, click, click, click. (laughs) Sending I was taking photographs. And they all scattered. They just went, like, they sort of like, apart from three of them, but the rest all scattered. And my dog went rushing after them, barking. But three of them, hoods went up and they did something I'd never seen before. They did the kind of making gun shapes with their hands and, you know, mm-hmm. pointing down and up at the same time, you know, this kind of hood stuff, gangster style. Yes. I mean, they were only like 17, 18 year olds or whatever. I mean, they were bigger than me, but they were kids. And they said, oh, we're going to mess you up. I'm using polite words. And instead of running away and feeling frightened, I was just feeling absolutely fine because I knew I could defend myself against four black belts. So these guys hadn't got a chance. So I started walking towards them quite slowly, just saying, oh, sorry, you want to hurt me? And uh, they went, yeah, yeah, we're going to mess you up. And eventually I get close to this guy and I said, well, okay, but you've got to think about two different things here. And he said, what's that? And I said, well, one is that, you know, how big are you going to look for, for beating up a fat 40 year old woman? Because I've never been particularly slim. <laughs> and then I said, but you've got to think about something else as well. And he went, what's that? And I said, you might not win. And at that point, the, the sheer confidence I had absolutely freaked him out. It did help the fact that my 10 year old daughter was tugging on my coat the entire time saying, mum, mum, don't hurt him. Don't hurt him. <laughs> She had so much confidence that that these guys didn't have a chance. I felt so proud of her and that she and my other daughter have grown up absolutely unafraid of men and unafraid to sort of stick up for themselves. And they're all black belts. My younger daughter and son have won international competitions, gold medals, etc. in Taekwondo. So like when my daughter and her boyfriend get into to strife, she pushes in behind her. You know, it's that the, the sheer confidence and all the way through school, nobody bullied them because they knew they could fight. They had that physical confidence. 
So I cannot recommend it highly enough. Two things I would recommend highly. One is do a martial art because it just makes such a difference to your confidence. But the other is write it all down because the catharsis you get from writing down any kind of trauma actually changes everything and how you feel about it. So interesting you say that because I talked it out with the podcast uh-huh. and the writing piece for me has been a block from a time and energy. But I, I have written parts, but to write it all down, I was like, I've done my story. I've told it in this way on the podcast and it feels like that is it done. But one thing I wanted to talk to you about was really interesting. You doing this documentary that's just come out. It'll be a few months after when it come out. It was one thing that I've been approached about with telling my story. And I just felt like I'd done it enough. But I'm also hearing from you. One thing that really comes out is your drive and your passion. Why? And it is all around education. It's around education for people and to see that you don't have to have shame. And it's funny because I haven't felt brave enough to put my story into something as big as that as into a documentary. I was like, eh, it's enough that I've controlled the narrative. <laughs> How does it feel doing doing the documentary? You have to trust the people that are doing it. Uh, you have to. I mean, I've, I've made documentaries in the past and they've been good. They've been fine. But because they've been 40-minute documentaries, they've just done the headlines. And so as a result, because they're just the headlines, it does make the victims look like bits of idiots because, oh, you know, she met this guy online. He told her she was a spy. She believed him. He said he was infertile, but she had children with him and still believed him, you know, et cetera. And it just, it doesn't gel. But this organization that's made this three-part documentary series, they actually came up to see me before we did it. And we sat down, we had a coffee and they said, what matters to you about this? And I said, what matters to me is that we educate people that we make people understand that these psychopaths are around everywhere, that they have a huge impact, not just on the women that they're defrauding, but on their children and on their sisters and brothers and mothers and fathers. And it actually, it's like a bomb going off in a community because it's not you that's been just affected. It's your children, it's your family and everything else by your situation. And I want to make sure that none of the victims will be humiliated further by the, the documentary. And they were like, that's perfect. That's fine. And that's what they did. These people were really, really committed to doing it and committed to really telling the story the way we wanted it told. I'm really proud of it. I think it's amazing. It's called The Other Mrs. Jordan, Catching the Ultimate Con Man. I was expecting trolls, and I've done quite a lot of live TV and radio and stuff. But every time I've done stuff on TV, you get the the people that come across it. Oh, how stupid is she? You know, and really quite personal, nasty things people say. I'm pretty thick-skinned with it. But I was expecting it, and I was prepared for it. There was nothing absolutely nothing since this documentary has come out. It's been absolutely overwhelmingly powerful and wonderful and good. And I'm actually having to learn to take compliments because it's just been overwhelmingly, oh my God, you're amazing. And you're this and that and the other. And it's like, yeah, I'm, <laughs> it's a, I find that uncomfortable taking compliments, but the amount of mail I've had and the amount of support and people saying how much it has affected their way they see themselves it's just amazing. So it has achieved everything that we had that first meeting about and it's educating people about how to recover from this kind of thing as well. That's the biggest message from my part too, is you yeah. we're going to go through all kinds of trauma and chaos in their lives, but actually how do we help educate and empower? It is all about that because we can take control. We just not know in a society how to support that. That's the empath in me that wants to help everybody. So I guess that's part of this bravery piece for us to come out and speak and do this is because we have a bigger mission. And to me, there has to be some good out of it. 
all the pain that yeah. that person has caused. It's like there is good, and we can yes. choose to be part there of is. that. It's big, and there is, and actually, interesting enough, there's there's research studies shown that the people who experience trauma but then go do something with it, they get a degree, or they write a book, or they do a podcast, or they change their life in some means or ways for the better and help other people are the people that recover the fastest. Because what we're doing is we're actually putting value in the traumatic experience. I mean, I mean, I look at what I've done since that as well. I don't, I'm not grateful to him, no. but I'm grateful I had the opportunity to rise like a phoenix from the ashes. <laughs> and that's something that has changed me entirely. I'm glad I had the opportunity to do that. And I wouldn't wish what happened to me on anyone. You know, if my story can help anybody recover that a little bit faster or not get into the situation in the first place, even yeah. better, then it was all worth it. Job done. So, yeah, job done. I have moments where I go back and go, oh, yeah, that happened. Well, that was a weird story. Oh, God. Can't believe that was my life sometimes. And that's those moments aren't even in the podcast. And this new podcast has been created out of that trauma. And I think that's what you said. It's that post-traumatic growth that comes out of what you make and that's how that resilience builds. Um, but that's a choice as well. We've both chosen to figure out how to move through this in a different way. Yeah. And I think I think that's bravery. Yeah. To you, what is bravery? Ooh, that's a really good question. Bravery is not the absence of fear. Bravery is feeling the fear and doing it anyway. And so I guess if I am brave, it's because, you know, even doing the black belt and stuff like that, I was prepared. I knew that he could possibly open the door one day and find him there. And when I went to America, you know, they've got guns in America. <laughs> it's like I was worried because I was going on stage and I've made his life very difficult. So I accept the fact that he could very well one day just decide to kill me. And it still wouldn't stop me because that message still needs to go out there. That's my little bit of bravery is going, it doesn't matter if my life does end because of this. I would still carry on getting that message out there because I don't want to see other people hurt. Me getting on a plane, going out to America, that was bravery because I'm terrified of flying. <laughs> it's really interesting because even by the definition of stuff, a psychopath could never be brave. They don't have any fear of the future because they don't care about the future self any more than they care about other people. So they don't care that they're going to go to jail. They don't care they're going to hurt themselves. They don't care. They literally don't care about the future self any more than care about anyone else. So by definition, they can't be brave because they don't have the fear. In fact, interesting enough, the first sign of psychopathy in a child is fearlessness because they don't have any worry or, or fear of consequences. So many mic drop, like pennies just falling right now <laughs> with people that I've interacted with people that I've dated. So fascinating, Mary. There is so much more to uncover with your story. I mean, I highly recommend The Psychopath. That's what I've been bearing myself in. My sister's read The Bigamist and was like, I can't put it down. And she loves <laughs> true crime. She's one of the reasons why you're here, as well as Scottish friends that have connected us. Like it's such, the world yes. is so small. I love how it's so small. So please, if you are listening to the podcast or watching the video later, check out Mary's work. It is one that is around empowering people. And for men and women, uh, it is a powerful place to learn where you can take control. And I'm so grateful that you've written the books, that you've that you've done the documentary. I hope it comes to New Zealand so that we can listen to it and watch Fingers it over crossed, here. Yes. Fingers crossed. Yeah. And please keep being brave because that is exactly what you are doing.
Oh, thank you. Well, thank you very much for having me. I've really enjoyed the conversation. It's been fun. Thanks, Mary. You're welcome. Thank you for tuning in to the Bravery Academy. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button. And if you're looking to take your support for the podcast to the next level, visit patreon.com forward slash the Bravery Academy to access exclusive content and get early access to our upcoming episodes. Your feedback means the world to us. So please take a moment to give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for being part of the Bravery Academy community. Stay brave, stay curious, and keep challenging yourself to grow. Until next time. Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor, so while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardknowpodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. Our lives were never the same after we learned our 21-year-old daughter, Kristen, was murdered by her ex-boyfriend. It's a parent's worst nightmare. How much did we really know about domestic violence back then? Clearly not enough. Now we know plenty. We know domestic violence, or DV, can happen to anyone. One in three women suffer physical violence at the hands of intimate partners during their lifetimes. One in three. I'm Bill Mitchell, host of the When Dating Hurts podcast. And my interviews with DV counselors law enforcement, and especially actual DV survivors give the pandemic of domestic violence the attention it deserves. The When Dating Hurts podcast. It's a series of lives being saved.